Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario. An absolutely spectacular day here in eastern Ontario. The weather has turned, folks. Fall is here. Cool nights, warmish days, leaves changing color. I absolutely love this time of the year. Very happy that the weather has started to turn. This week on the show, I wanted to follow up on some of the ideas that we talked about last week where we reposted my conversation from 2018 with Tanya Davidson, where we looked at statues and memorials in public spaces and the influence that they have on people's understanding and relationship with history. And part of this was prompted by an event last week that was held at the National Archives in Washington, where President Trump hosted the White House Conference on American History. And during this conference, there were a number of historians from the United States that were critical of some of the newer ways that history is taught, particularly the 1619 project from the New York Times. And during this conference, the president said that he would sign an executive order that would create a commission for patriotic history in the United States. And of course, this did prompt a lot of debate, not only in the United States, but within historical communities around the world. And I spent a chunk of the weekend reading a lot of articles that were both supportive of the president and in opposition of this idea. And what I took away from this primarily was that in these discussions, there doesn't seem to be an agreement on necessarily even what history is. And there are questions about what the past can inform us of and and how we can take events that have happened and use them to create an informed citizenry. And, And the strategies for doing that, of course, are very diverse and the president and people who support the president certainly have one very specific way of looking at things and the one thing that struck me is in people who are critical of new forms of history they often say that you shouldn't feel ashamed when you study history and i think that's fair you don't necessarily want to have people be shamed as they learn about the past. But I also don't think that history is necessarily there to make you feel good either. Right? What history should do, what good history education should do, is make you think. It should make you ask questions. It should make you want to know more. And putting a value of you should be ashamed of it or you should be super proud of it, for me, and maybe, again, I, I said this last week, maybe it's distinction without a difference. I don't know. But... I don't tend to take pride or shame or anything when I think about the past. I just want to understand what happened, ask questions about it, and learn more about it. Uh, And, and, you know, maybe I'm different from other people and I can have that detachment. But that's generally where I stand on that debate of, 
you know, patriotism or shame and, and all those things that get, are getting thrown around as history gets increasingly politicized in this environment. This is where ideas of historical thinking really come to the fore for me. And fortunately, as I've been thinking about this, it corresponded with the final edition of the three-part Canadian Historical Association series on what is historical thinking. And this is written by Lindsay Gibson, who is an assistant professor of social studies and history education in the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy at the University of British Columbia. The final edition of that series came out on Tuesday and it looked at historical thinking and asked the question of what is historical thinking in three parts. The first was defining historical thinking. And as Lindsay says on the show, that it's one of these things that a lot of us talk about and a lot of us try to incorporate in our own work, but there isn't a consensus on what historical thinking is. So the first part of the series really addresses that. The second part looks at how historical thinking developed over time and the different approaches to historical thinking and how they have changed over the years. And then, of course, the third part of the series, uh, which came out on Tuesday, are the critiques of historical thinking, because there are people who have been critical of the approaches and, and think that certain ways that historical thinking has been presented have been missing things. So that was the post on Tuesday. So I wanted to talk to Lindsay about ideas surrounding critical thinking, not only in context of what he wrote, but in context of his larger work in, in studying how history is presented in schools, how educators create history curricula and some of these larger debates surrounding the discipline. So that's what today's show is all about. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Lindsay Gibson. All right, and Lindsay Gibson joins us now all the way from Kelowna. Lindsay, how are you doing today? Great, thank you. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak with me about the Historical Thinking series over on the Canadian Historical Association website. Let's start about why this came into existence in the first place. Historical thinking is something that is as noted in the series, somewhat complicated, potentially even controversial. There's no real consensus on what historical thinking is. So where did the idea of writing the series come from? What prompted this? Uh, well, actually, um, my, PhD, my former PhD supervisor, Peter Satius, who you know formulated this, this conceptual framework, some people call it the big six, but these historical thinking, this historical thinking framework that includes six different concepts uh, he had been invited by a colleague in um, in in the Netherlands who asked, "Oh, can you you know we've got a new book coming out on history and in history and theory, a Bloomsbury book, and there's all sorts of different chapters at different levels. But one of the things they want is that we wanted to find core concepts in the field. So can you write a 2,500 word you know description of what historical thing is?" So Peter said to me, "You know he's retired and." Uh, he said to Maria, well, you know, I don't really have the time, but, you know, my former student who's now at UBC, Lindsay, he'll, he, he'd probably love to do it. So I was in contact with Maria and then we agreed that Peter and I would kind of co-write it together and in a way that I would do kind of the main writing and then send it to him for feedback and then have another kind of draft through it. And it was a really great opportunity because, you know, as much as you get 
deeply into these fields sometimes to have to flow back out of, you know, you get in so close to this stuff to fly out at a, at a higher altitude and look back and say, how would I explain this? How, where, what does this concept even mean? And where is it, you know, and, and what are the different interpretations of it and how does it get applied and what's, uh, you know, what's controversial about it? Cause they had a framework that they gave us. So when we finished it, I said to Peter, Hey, Peter, do you have a problem? You know, I'm, I'm part of the CHA committee now and we're trying to find different blog posts. Would you have any opposition to me changing aspects of it and doing different things, but, you know, formulating in this into a series and he didn't have any problem. And so, you know, my hope was too, is that history and theory, the book that comes out, you know, it, it will be accessed by certain people in the field, but there's a lot of people who wouldn't. So would there be a benefit for teacher educators, for current teachers in the system, for historians, practicing historians, public historians, who hear a lot about historical thinking or hear about it coming in curriculum, whether they could just read something really simple and be able to get their head around it. It's a long answer and, to a short question. Well, no, no, I, I think that is the key, right? Because I I work with high school students pretty regularly now with my work with the Vimy Foundation. We get high school students from across the country, which is super fascinating just to see the difference in their historical educations that they get based mm -hmm. on what province they're from or territory mm -hmm. they're from, you know, the different curricula that exist across the country. And one of the complaints that I had as a student in high school and that I even have now when I talk to friends of mine who are teachers and I work with some of the students across the country is that there's no real consistency in even what history is across mm -hmm. the country and what constitutes history when you go into a classroom. So having a series like this that is accessible and available to educators, I think there's a lot of benefit to that because you know, we, we can, and I'll ask you too later about some of the debates around historical thinking in the public sphere mm -hmm. that having something that is beyond just this person died on this day or how many people died at this battle or what happened where and when is so important and so critical to historical understanding. And we're seeing the, the reality that history and historical thinking is necessary for public debate as we continue into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the one of the difficulties, you know, one of the consequences uh, intended or unintended from, from Confederation, other things are the way the education system works. And so, you know, exactly as you said, you can go province to province. Some people will argue and say there is a de facto curriculum in Canada. Yes, it's provincial and territorial responsibility. But in general, a lot of places teach a lot of the same things well-known kind of significant events. And I to somewhat agree, agree with that, but they teach it at different ages. There's different foci, there's different themes that they focus on. And I mean, that was one of the real, you know, uh, positive offshoots of the of the historical thinking project that Peter Sasha started was all of a sudden you had ministries of education. You know, every year we would have an annual meeting where we had every social studies consultant or sometimes ADMs or other people from ministries of education, they rarely ever met together to get there and have conversations about what is our purpose of teaching history in schools and getting excited about, hey, here's a different kind of way of thinking about how we've been thinking about teaching history in school that they can kind of unify around. Now, the historical thinking framework laid out by Satius has been taken up in different provincial and territorial curriculum, and it's been adapted to meet different needs and changed in different ways and done all sorts of these different offshoots. So it was never about controlling it or standardizing it, but it was really wonderful just to kind of see the conversations. 
And what we don't know really is how much, how this is being taken up in classes and how students are doing it regularly. I mean, I'd be fascinated to know from you, like, you know, are you seeing anything different in the students that you, you deal with on a regular basis and your many different roles than how you remember being a student in school? Yes, I, I do notice a difference. I do feel as though the students that I deal with today are a little more receptive to ideas of critical thinking and thinking of things from different perspectives. When I was a student, you know, when I did Canadian history, I'm from Ontario, so it's grade 10. I was the first year of the new curriculum in, in Ontario where we had that big double cohort. Okay. If anybody remembers that in Ontario. And in that grade 10 class on Canadian history, literally the teacher walked up to the board and this was at least once a week and would write out paragraphs that we were expected to copy down. And then every couple of weeks there'd be a test saying, mm -hmm. how much of this do you remember? And that kind of stuff always bugged me. You know, when I was in the eighth grade, I yelled at a teacher that I hated history and it was so boring <laughs> and it was so useless. Like that, that's a thing mm -hmm. that happened in my life. Now I'm a professional historian yeah. because of the way I was taught then, I don't think actually constituted history and it certainly right. didn't involve historical thinking. Whereas the kids that I deal with today, and I, I know I shouldn't call them kids, but I mean, they're all, they're high school students. So they, yeah. I think of them as being very young. So the students that I deal with today, they, I think, have been challenged a little more. And I'm not sure if it's necessarily in their history classes, because mm -hmm. when we talk to them about some historical topics and think, you know, thinking critically about them or thinking about what's not included or who's not, whose voice isn't there, sometimes that's a little harder. But I think in some of their other areas where they're being taught, they're thought or they're taught to think critically and to question things and to wonder why. Uh, mm -hmm. things are the way they are. And, and that type of approach does feel different to me. And they they definitely have a different view of how to approach topics than I did when I was their age. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think back to, you know, I think back to my high school education. And I remember I had a really good social studies. I, I'm from BC. So it was social studies until grade 12. And there's a history 12 class. But I had a well-known, like very popular, high quality history teacher who was experimenting kind of out of what you're describing into some other things, but, you know, scratching at the surface kind of. And then, I mean, I feel like when I look back on my high school education and, and some of my university education, I feel like I didn't really know exactly what you were saying earlier, what history was and how it worked. You know, it gave me, I had a real flawed sense, I think, coming out of high school about what, what it was. And I mean, I had the benefit of a tremendous history education at SFU where I did my undergrad. I, you know, I just had such a, it was such a formative experience to me that when I started teaching after I got out of university in a secondary school, I remember thinking to me, you know, uh, thinking to myself, uh, this is not history teaching, right? Because I had experienced this in high school and then gone to university and experienced what it could be at its most powerful, I think, in lots of ways, and then got back in the classroom and said, no, this whole you know, read the textbook or watch this thing, this whole informational focus of history, just to know a bunch of stuff and to be able to regurgitate it on assignments or on final tests or even in projects, you know, the lack of thinking that was done floored me. And so that was really the impetus for me throughout my entire career, the last 20 years of to say, what does it mean to really engage students deeply in thinking? Because I mean, you're exactly like me in the sense that we love 
we loved history and recognized what we were getting in school wasn't history. Right. Right. And we had this sense of maybe what it was. I was always fascinated by the past from the time I was very little. But then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, this is what this means in this area. And then that, you know, in university, if we're lucky, can be, you know, sort of unpacked and reassembled again for us in some ways. So that's what we're really trying to do is to, to use, I guess, what I experienced as a university student that we know from research and other things that very, very young students have really strong ideas about what history is and have really sophisticated understandings of the relationship between the past and present and, you know, all of those things. So uh, that's the exciting part. For sure. And, and it's the sort of thing, too, that, you know, for me, like the the factual side of it was never really my strong point. And, you know, I, I do trivia with my family now that's virtual in the pandemic. And whenever there's a history question, honestly, unless it's, you know, Canada, 20th century and preferably interwar Canada, 20th century, <laughs> you know, I can't necessarily be relied on to remember the middle name totally. of the first Earl of Essex in 1840 because honestly like i I don't much care and it's more about sort of the the why and that's so what and when it was presented the first time it was presented to me that when you're writing history you need to answer the so what question that's when Mm -hmm. it clicked for me right Um, it's sort of that that was the key for me and and that it was just put so succinctly and it made so much sense to me i was like ah okay this this makes sense and i hit on that now in all my classes like when i talk to students i always think of that so what question and why it matters and then i end every class uh, at the university level when i teach i always say to them that there's a very good chance that you are going to forget all of the factual information that I've presented to you over the past three months, mm-hmm. you know, so like the class that I do about radio, you, you're not going to necessarily remember the station in Pittsburgh that was super influential, right? You're not going to remember the difference between AM and FM and the way the frequencies work. But what I want you to remember, what I want you to take away from the class is trying to think about the connection between those things and the influence they had on society and the connections that we tried to make in the room. And even if you don't necessarily remember the factual side of it, even the process through which you thought about it is what I want you to take away from it. And that what that's what I think is so key about history is developing that ability, kind of sharpening that pencil mm-hmm. of critical thinking, making connections, uh, assessing the value of various sources. That's where I come at it from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it's one of those things that, Again, when I think about my friends who are now teachers, they learned one way in high school. They might have taken a couple of history courses in university, but they're presented with this curriculum and they're, a lot of them go back to the way they were taught. Mm-hmm. So how much of what you do is confronting that side of it, of the, not only just the teacher education side, and I think mm-hmm. teachers, especially right now, we're seeing the value of teachers and how much work teachers really put into their mm-hmm. courses, but they're conf- you know they seem to me at least from a distance and anecdotally, oftentimes they can go back to the way they were taught things, particularly in subjects that they may not be mm-hmm. super comfortable in. Is that something yeah. that you see a lot in your work? Well, there's all sorts of I mean, there's all sorts of complicated aspects of history teaching in that regard. You know, there's always been a problem of, you know, because of various systemic structures within the education system that you can have people teaching areas that they have very little background in. You know, we've got a big, I'm part of a big 
grant being led by Dr. Carla Peck called the Thinking Historically for Canada's Future. It's a seven-year uh, Shirk partnership grant with 50 other partners across Canada, you know, the CHA, all of the Provincial Socialized Teachers Association. And our grant's really trying to figure out, you know, it's looking at three different areas. It's looking at curriculum and resources. It's looking at teaching and learning as it's going on. And it's looking at uh, teacher education. And the first three years of this grant, we're, we're trying to get a, you know, reconnoitering the field, trying to map the terrain, get an idea of what's actually happening in classrooms all across Canada and the wide diversity of it. How are people trained? What background do they have? What, what struggles are they facing? All of those kinds of things. And then the second four years of the grant, uh, we're going to be looking at innovation. So it's like, okay, well, what appears to be some really powerful things happening and, you know, that we would want to have a look at and explain what was going on and what impact it had and all of those types of things. So absolutely, the background of the teacher is a big deal. People being forced out of areas, the conception of teachers, you know, one of the big difficulties we have, exactly as you said, is we have a group of people who were taught history in a particular way, uh, a very informational approach, what might we call it that. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they're now curriculums change, all of these other things, and curriculums asking them to get students to inquire into these powerful moments and these key ideas and to think historically about them and use these different concepts. So if we, I use your example of the radio, well, we might say to them, how significant what, how historically significant was the radio in the history of Canada, right? And to do that, we might look at another concept, which is consequence, right? Cause and consequence. What were the expected or what were the intended and unintended consequences of radio coming in across Canada, right? What did this mean? And both socially, politically, economically, in all of these different ways, we might look at how from different perspectives, what did the radio look like? And that might be from race, class, gender, indigenous, non-indigenous, you know, all of these kinds of things. So, these become almost like portals to investigate the, this key content. So, you know, and that's the hard thing is that forever in education, it's been this, the big debate has always been like kind of information versus skills, right? And I always, you know, I always bristle a little bit when I hear historical thinking described as skills, because they're not just skills. You're not learning how to, you know, how to make a birdhouse or you're not learning how to ride a bike, that these skills involve both, uh, knowledge and understanding procedural knowledge in some cases so how i actually do something but also metacognitive habits how we think about our own thinking uh all of those different aspects of it and what we're trying to say in historical thinking is the content is absolutely important we want to deepen students on understanding of key ideas of change and continuity over time or of racism or of you know, voting rights and equality or whatever these big historical themes that we might be looking at or time periods or events or whatever else that we decide that, that they're important. But it's not mutually exclusive that we we can understand some key aspects of those and key, you know, facts, but also how we use those to be able to frame interpretations and to deepen their understanding of what history is and how it works. So all the time, like your, your story about family trivia is great. I always tell my, my, the, 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 teacher candidates, the pre-service teachers that I work with, I always tell them a story about, you know, meeting parents at parent-teacher interviews. And they always say to me, oh, Lindsay, I hear you, you know, I hear you're really active in history and you really like history. Well, I'm quite the history buff as well. And, you know, when I go down to the local bar and play online trivia, I, I nail all the history questions. And the parents always say to me, well, I guess I should be a history teacher. Right? <laughs> and 
but at the same time, I don't want to discount that because, yeah, you know, historians, you know a lot of stuff, right? You have a lot of knowledge of this time period and the historiography, but you also know what the questions are and you also know how this works. And I think that, for example, the debates we're having about statues and commemoration really pit two very different understandings of what history are against each other. And they're, you know, and they're in conflict. So for those who think history is the true story of the past, a factual account, they would look at a statue and said, well, that's the truth of history. It was created in the past. And anyone who attempts to change that is a revisionist or a historical vandal of some type. Right. If someone and understands that there's a difference between past and history, and history is written in the present as an interpretation of the past based on these things, then what they might see, and they might disagree with a statue being taken down, but what they understand is that it's a revision. It's a, The process of revision is the generative aspect of what history is. Right. And that's what bugs me so much about the current debates that, that are ongoing. And I didn't, I couldn't bring myself to watch the entirety <laughs> of the president's, whatever they called no, it no. last week. Uh, but, you know, I, I've read a bunch of articles about it, both from people who support the idea and people who oppose mm -hmm. the idea in, a, in an attempt to get a balanced perspective of what was actually said in the room. And what strikes me about it is just what you're saying is that no one's asking those key questions of, mm. you know, how was this narrative created? And the example that I use, and it was a comment to one of these stories that somebody made, and it's relative to slavery. And I've heard it elsewhere mm. that people say, well, you know, people who owned slaves, that's the way it was. And right. everyone was okay with it. And I think right. to myself, well, not everyone was okay with it. <laughs> right. You know, there were literally millions of people who were actively fighting against it every single day and trying to escape enslavement. Yeah. So to say that everybody is was okay with it really discounts those voices. What you're really saying is everybody who was in power was okay power, with yeah. it, right? And, and so what I want to, or what I hope to to present to students is to ask those questions and you know we recently had a an activity with them where everyone watched a, a documentary about the first world war the peter jackson documentary oh yeah, a few yeah years yeah. ago that's that that's I, I think is really well done yeah but we also asked the question of what's missing like mm -hmm. whose voices don't you hear and there's a wide variety of voices you don't hear like you don't hear women you don't hear uh, minorities or anyone from any mm -hmm. of the colonies mm -hmm. uh, included. You don't hear conscripts. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there's a bunch of voices that you don't hear. But if you were to just watch this documentary, you could say, well, that was the First World War experience right. for people on the Allied side. So it, it's not, as you say, it's not necessarily about revising things or tearing thing, tearing the past down or completely changing what happened, but rather asking different questions in order to for me, at least, illuminate different stories and get different perspectives on the past. And, and there might... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No. No, and there might be, you know, the Peter Jackson one's a really fascinating topic. I've been working on some VR experiences and some research projects that we have going um, with the Voices Group, the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children in, in, uh, in just outside of Halifax, outside of Dartmouth. Uh, and, you know, it's the... The really difficult, the, the difficult thing is that these concepts, these historical thinking concepts can, can, can be entrances into asking really important questions. So historical significance asks us who or what 
is important historically speaking? What what should we study that that these ideas, these decisions about significance are being made by your curriculum documents, by your teachers, by you? When we tell stories, we choose what to include and what not to include. It's by people in power. And we and one of the big questions we ask is who's left out of this story? Exactly as you're asking about the Peter Jackson one. The historical perspective concepts helps us say, let's try and understand. This is like as hard as this is, maybe the biggest challenge in history. How do we understand a time period that may have been so fundamentally different than our own? That the values and the beliefs and the worldviews and the customs and all of those things might be very different. And that we don't assume that what we think of as being the norm today wasn't the norm then. Now, that doesn't mean when we look back in the past, you know, which we saw with the Johnny McDonald thing once. Oh, he's a man of his time. Everyone thought this way. Well, a student who really understood the perspectives concept might ask themselves, okay, how popular were these views at the time period? What groups were these, these viewpoints and attitudes popular amongst? And who are, what, what perspectives are not being included? Because surely, uh, you know, political cartoons, the documentary record, all of these things can show you examples of people opposing Johnny McDonald's indigenous policy. So this idea that, you know, and you're trying to tell me that people who were being harmed or being assimilated or whatever else were not going to oppose their own assimilation. You know what I mean? So kids can think yeah. about these things. And that's what we really want them to do. And to see, for example, a statue not as the capital T truth, but as an interpretation of the past that was raised by somebody in the past or a group of people who decided on what the narrative was going to be. And as my friend Andres Korber calls them, he calls them proto-narratives. A statue or, you know, a commemoration is offering an interpretation, an, an abbreviated one, a highly interpretive one, but, but a narrative nonetheless. And so if students can understand, it doesn't mean that there's no truth or no facts. There are plausible interpretations. But just like, you know, the idea of Donald Trump or, you know, legislating patriotic education. Here's the story of American history. They're so upset by the 1619 project that I'm going to mandate a story yeah. to you, a narrative about the past. It reveals their fundamental misunderstanding about what history is, right? And that, that everything's a challenge to this objective record. And that's what we're trying to help students do is how can we understand history and use it to make sense of our own lives, uh, to understand the past, to understand the present, but use those understandings to guide us as we're thinking into the future. And that, this this notion of historical consciousness. And I don't know, maybe it's because I am a historian, but when I heard or, or read some of the quotes from the president from the session last week, where he was saying that, you know, the country was one that was founded on freedom. And I'm thinking, like, okay, so if the country is founded on freedom and, you know, after the American Revolution, everyone is free and everything's great and people had slaves because that's the way it was, then why did things change if everybody was okay with it? Right. You know, what, what were people like Sojourner Truth doing? Uh, uh -huh. or Frederick Douglass, what were they doing? Um, you know, like, like those people like that don't fit into a narrative of everything was great. And without, you know, it's important to just ask questions right. and, and yeah. wonder about things. And, you know, when you're going through and you're doing these projects, I'm curious to know if as you're doing them, do you notice or are schools doing this in concert with other subjects? Because I was thinking this week about there was a TikToker who got a lot of grief online mm -hmm. because she made a TikTok that said, how do we know math is real? And <laughs> a lot of people were, were critical of her. And then a mathematician went on CBC 
and oh, said, right, this, that's, right. a, that's a really good question. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's one thing to present. And, and I, I, I hate to make necessarily this parallel, but it struck me as a pretty good parallel that in math, I was presented with formulas. And -hmm. people said, this formula is right, plug it in, use it. Right. And then I thought to myself, like, how do how do I know that that formula is actually right? And Mm -hmm. it's the same with history Mm -hmm. that you want to see the connections made. And it strikes me that a lot of the things that are are inherent in historical thinking would also apply to other subjects. So have you seen that this type of approach is happening in concert with other disciplines? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, I mean, this framework, you know, so my background came, I did a master's focusing on critical thinking. So, oh, what is critical thinking? And I was doing research uh, in five history 12 classes I was teaching in Kelowna at the time period. And I started seeing, wait a second, this kind of generic model of critical thinking has some huge advantages for for the students and myself and was seeing all these things, but there's something unique happening in, there's something unique about the discipline of history that, you know, if critical thinking is the wider umbrella, this might be one aspect within that umbrella, right? That there are some common kinds of things that we're doing here, but Peter Sages's model, for example, has been taken up. So they, so it's been adapted by the Royal Canadian Geographic Society to say, these are historical thinking concepts. Oh, we're going to adapt those. And we've got now geographic thinking concepts. So some of them are really connected. So for example, well, we look at evidence and interpretations, accounts, secondary accounts in history, in, you would also do the same thing in geography. But instead of looking at, for example, historical significance, we might talk about geographic or spatial significance, like what makes a place or space significant, right? We might look at continuity and change in history over time as being a core piece of history, Whereas, for example, patterns and trends would be the idea that we might look at in economics or in geography or something like that. So these are definitely being taken up. Now, interdisciplinary in that sense, I would say is much more happening in elementary schools because high schools are still organized around these subjects. So you see less so. But I think what you're what you said that's really powerful is this idea of the dispositions that history can foster to ask really hard questions. I I read L.D. Burnett, who I follow on Twitter as an American historian, an Americanist who wrote just a really neat little piece, just kind of responding some aspects of this, this, the critique of 1619. And she asked all of these questions. So, you know, so for example, and I don't know American history as well as I know Canadian history, but they're questions that ask these fundamental things that question these norms or the accepted truths. And that is very powerful. So, so for example, we saw people say, you know, or Richard Gwynn claim, Johnny McDonald's the man who made us. Is he? Right. And we asked this question, could confederation, would confederation have likely happened regardless of whether Johnny McDonald had organized this in some particular way? Let's look at these other things. Let's look at, you know, what was going on in the British Empire and attitudes in the British, you know. So, so this idea that we question these fundamental norms. So she asked these things like, was the American Revolution a, 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 a war of independence or was it actually a counter-revolution? The, did the did the North really win the Civil War? Civil War, or did the South? You know that we ask yeah. these fundamental things that make us think in a different way about those things, and that to me is one of the most powerful aspects that we can have students. It's not what we know for sure that age-old quote that's the problem. It, uh, it's not sorry. It's not what we don't know is the problem. It's what we know for sure that just ain't true. Right. Yeah. And but I guess the the issue that I sort of see then from this is that 
asking those questions does get perceived as a threat in some quarters and is threatening to some people. And, you know, I don't want to comment too, too much on the political situation in this country, but if yep. you look at the conservative leadership uh, campaign sure. that, that just yep. went on, there, there are echoes of these sorts of issues within that campaign as well. Mm -hmm. and, and so why do you think that just asking these questions and presenting alternatives or alternative options mm -hmm. for the study of history do you have a sense of why this is so threatening or at least gets perceived to be a threat in some quarters? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, in education, in, in history and socialized education in Canada, for example, there's been an age-old debate about the purposes of history education. And forever, you know, Tim Stanley's written beautifully about this and a lot of other people have written about it. You know, there was this nation building approach to this, right? Let's teach them the goals and let's teach them the values and the key people that made this country great. It's a Whiggish history, a story of progress, a story of all of these types of things. People get very entrenched on that. Well, the goal was to create patriotic citizens who followed rules, who had these values, an immigrant, you know, a newly immigrant population that we need to sort of build the virtues and habits that we think are Canadian or British or however, you know, or Quebec, you know, or Quebecois in Quebec, whatever it might be. So these nation building approaches were really powerful. So when those began to be questioned, though, and we started rethinking, well, what is a good citizen and what's the purpose of learning history? Surely it's not indoctrination. But a lot of people, you know, they feel like they're losing ground in that sense. But again, we go back to this idea. This is their sense of history. Their sense of history is this truth, this one story that they learned in school, and that's what they hold on to. I mean, I had, before I knew who Aaron O'Toole was, I remember four years ago having a Twitter debate with him about, you know, he's using presentism and all of these things, all of these cudgels to try and explain why statues shouldn't be taken down with. And, it, you know, it reveals this very fundamental understanding of the past and the power. And that's what I think, that's why I bristle about this idea of historical thinking concepts as skills. Because for teachers, what they do is they open up windows to ask questions. So significance helps us ask that. The ethical dimension asks us about the right and wrongs of the past and our responsibilities in the present to respond to those things. And so they can be used to frame those questions. So when Aaron O'Toole says, whatever, I'm bringing Canada back or let's get Canada back or whatever sort of offshoot of a Trumpian phrase this is, that students are going to be like, well, what do you mean? What back is he talking to? Right. Right. And, and, and what does this mean? And, and why is he saying this message? And, and what does this even mean? And, you know, is he just building this idyllic view and why this, you know, why this particular time period? And I think that's the power of history that it's not going to guarantee, you know, a history education is not going to guarantee you that you're going to be a thinker. But I think the dispositions and the way, you know, teaching them that we can really, and we've seen lots of examples of it, of young students being able to think in very critical ways and understand what history is and to say, you know, oh, I get this. And I hear, you know, they're all going to be confronting history everywhere in their lives, right? Not just, you know, school is the most sort of like systematic place we have, but, you know, TikTok memes, as you're talking about, historical films like Peter Jackson's, you know, I would love students to look at Peter Jackson and say, this is an amazing film, but this is not reality, Right? right. They had to find people to do voiceovers. They colorize this. There's still a level of interpretation here. Right. And we but we'll, we so we don't say whether it's the truth or not. But what we might say is, do you think this is a plausible interpretation of some soldiers experiences during the First World War? And to that, I mean, I'm 
I was not like, oh, look, this is exactly what soldiers went through. For me, it was like, what a technological miracle to be able to like, you know, record the sounds and get right. the colors and to do that. But I'm not going to pretend that that's real life either. Yeah, it's it's a much more personal, if, if not anecdotal version of the war. And and you're absolutely mm-hmm. right, I think. And it, it's one of these things where, yeah, we want people to to ask the questions because history is everywhere. It's you know, you walk outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, I live in Ottawa, so maybe I'm confronted with it even more because <laughs> there's statues and, and plaques everywhere in this town. Yeah. But certainly everywhere in the country, you know, history influences the way we live, even, you know, where roads go. You know, there's historical reasons yeah. for that. So uh, it's so important. And so for people who are interested in seeing more of this, where can they go to find the article and some of your other work that you're doing on this topic? So you could uh, find the article on the Canadian Historical Association's Teaching and Learning blog. There's all three parts of it there. And I don't know, maybe we could post it with the podcast. Yeah, I'll, I'll link it up. If, if anyone wants to head over to activehistory.ca, have, it'll be linked yeah. up there. The big research grant we have is called Thinking Historically for Canada's Future. And if you just did a Google search on that, you'll be able to find the website. And we're going to be posting. We're only we're just finished year one, so we're really ramping up. Uh, the Historical Thinking Project, historicalthinking.ca, is a great place to see Peter Sage's original formulation. Uh, but of course, look me up, at, send me an email, find me on Twitter, LS underscore Gibson. Um, and I'm always happy to chat about anything regards to history. All right. Uh, so Lindsay Gibson, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it. My conversation with Lindsay Gibson, and I thank him for joining me today. If you are interested in the historical thinking series that he wrote, I will link to it as part of the post for this episode over at Active History. You can also head over to the Canadian Historical Association website. It is under teaching. And please do let me know what you think about this topic, about the idea of historical thinking. As I said last week with statues, this is something that I really do think about a lot. I spend a lot of my working hours considering a lot of these issues. So please do let me know what you think. Do reach out historyslam at gmail.com on Twitter at the Sean Graham. As I said last week, though, let's be nice about it. Let's have productive discussions when we're going to talk about these issues. If uh, you just want to call me an idiot. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, comments, rate the show. That helps other people find the show, keeps us going as well. And please do head over to activehistory.ca. Lots of content over there. You can find all of the past episodes that we've done. Uh, including some of the ones over the past few weeks. It's It's been interesting through the summer, uh, the variety of topics that we've uh, had the opportunity to look at. I've certainly enjoyed uh, all the episodes and the conversations that I've had. Hope you have as well. So we will be back with you again next week. But until then, thanks for listening. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.